I gotta look inside me to find my way. I'm gonna make the best of this my second, second chance in life. This choral music is based on the writings of ten incarcerated men. It was performed recently in Richmond, Virginia. Antonio Garcia was inspired to compose the choral music after he read the book called Writing Our Way Out, Memoirs from Jail. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we take inspiration from the writings of people in prison. Writing Our Way Out, Memoirs from Jail, is the brainchild of David Coogan, a professor of English at Virginia Commonwealth University. He taught a writing class at the Richmond City Jail, where the men wrote about turning points in their lives on their paths into and out of prison. David's colleague Antonio Garcia read the book. He was so moved he composed an entire chorale called Open Minds, Music That Mends. Antonio's a music professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, and the two of them join me for the interview. David, Writing Our Way Out is the book you put together with 10 men who are in jail for nonviolent offenses. Why is it called Writing Our Way Out? Had they been released from prison or was writing going to help them get out? We call it Writing Our Way Out because we, we understand that people get caught up in a lifestyle that can lead to crime and incarceration. And writing is a way of exploring the boundaries that you've created, but also the ways you can break past those and to start a new life. You founded a program called Open Minds, where your college students take courses with men and women in jail. What do you notice about their interaction during those courses? And what do you think they all get out of that experience? It's amazing, really, how much work you have to do to kind of arrive at this simple and and profound truth that the people in jail are really no different from the people that are not in jail. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has dreams. And so when you really get into conversation um, across the table like that between incarcerated people and, and college students, you realize that not only have a lot of people have experienced the same troubles in life, whether it be addiction or physical abuse um, or poverty, but that people also have the same beautiful uh, humanity in them. They have the ability to kind of change their lives. They just didn't stop and think of it that we're all struggling and we can all overcome. Tony, you read Writing Our Way Out. What was its effect on you? Well, I think it's a transformative book. Those of us who have been fortunate enough to isolate ourselves a bit from the acts of crime that have taken place in our communities, don't really think about anyone who has been involved in those and the reasons why people would commit crime. Were you thinking as you read it, I could do music to this? (laughs) Well, I was. I had met Dave a couple of years previous at a a faculty reception. We talked briefly. And when I finally got a chance to, to read the book, Frankly, music was jumping out of every corner, off of every page. I couldn't stop hearing music that I could derive from the book, so the most difficult decision was simply what not to write about. What parts of the book most inspired the actual music and lyrics you created? The book 
had sections that focused on the upbringing of these individuals, the horrible things that happened to them in a variety of points of their lives. And keep in mind that each of these men have claimed full responsibility for their actions. They're not using this book as an excuse. Then their reflection on what led them to that and what path they want, they dream for their future. And uh, the first uh, movement that I drew upon from the book was a a scenario uh, titled Hot Dogs. And even that phrase, hot dogs, brings to me a musical picture. And so uh, it was very easy for me to draw on those kinds of musical images as I read David's book. David, would you read from Hot Dogs, and then let's play the musical selection. Sure. This is a piece by Stanley Craddock. Hot dogs, get your hot dogs, the man at the baseball game sings out. Hot dogs, hot dogs, anyone want a hot, hot dog? The man keeps on in a high-pitched voice, not knowing that his words are hypnotizing me, sending me deeper and deeper into a trance. For the next few moments, my life is frozen. Where I grew up in the rich area near Bird Park, everybody played sports. My father loved baseball. It's what he understood. But I excelled at football. Any stress in that game, I readily accepted. The press, third down, a yard to go, give me the ball. Now, my father is not into sports where you sit in front of the TV and just watch a game. That's not his style. His character is more of a man who fixes things around the house. He was so involved in my playing baseball that he would drive the whole team to games. Now, it's three balls, two strikes, a full count. I'm at the plate. But instead of focusing on the next pitch, I'm worried about what my father is thinking, watching me in the stands. My God, here comes that last pitch, and I'm going down swinging. Our relationship was lost at three balls and two strikes. his relationship with his father was, as he put it, lost, was because he was being blamed for all the the lack of harmony in the household. Uh, Stan had been adopted, was then, you know, as a teenager, whatever problem was happening in the house, he was blamed for it. He accepts a little bit of responsibility for being mischievous, but he doesn't, as he put it, says, I don't think I'm the devil. But his father thought differently and drove him down to Gray Street. And Gray Street was, well, let's say, less about Panera Bread, more about prostitution back in the 80s. And and that's where he was living, all alone, in a one-bedroom apartment and taken in by an older prostitute who took care of him and taught him how to survive the streets. What he holds in continuously is this confusion, anger, and frustration at being abandoned. 
by his family. And as a as a musician reading this book, it was revelatory for me to understand that perspective and to be able to meet Stan as an adult and to really try to educate myself with, as the piece says, an open mind. Uh, because if we don't get to the root causes of child abuse and drug abuse that infect our communities, we're not going to stop the crimes that these folks will later create as adults. David, this next piece is called Hell Was on the Way. Yes, this is a piece by Najee Mujahid, another one of the co-authors of Writing Our Way Out, Memoirs from Jail. My mother is sleeping peacefully on her back with her head turned slightly to the side. She's beautiful, thin, with smooth, ebony skin. To me, her eyes are her most endearing trait. They're large and bright and have this magical sparkle. One glance, and I know exactly where she is emotionally. She makes me feel like I am the only thing that matters. She doesn't wake up right away, but I know she's playing. I can't remember her ever being mad. Even when she gets upset with my brother and me, her demeanor is more like a person who has experienced a great loss. She has this old record player, a cabinet combination made of veneer wood grain with twin speakers built into the sides. It's filled with old records, 33s and 45s. Her favorite artist is Sam Cooke. Every day it seems I hear him crooning that the girl was only 16, she was too young to fall in love, and he was too young to know. The melody is slow, the rhythm is contemplative. I climb into the bed, jump down on my knees and begin tickling her. She doesn't move, so I begin shaking her. When that doesn't work, I start to get worried. Finally, I call my brother, and we both shake her and shake her until my brother explains to me that something is terribly wrong. One of the few memories I have of home, the one of my mother dying, is the most vivid. I internalize my pain because I didn't know how to express it. I really thought that that was the worst thing anybody would ever have to go through. But I was about to find out Life hadn't even begun to get rough for me and my brother. Hell was on the way. She doesn't wake up right away, but I know she's playing. I climb into the bed and begin tickling her. She doesn't move, so I shake her. It doesn't work. I call my brother, and we shake her, but can't wake her. Of the few memories I have of home, the one of my mother dying is the most vivid. I internalized my pain because I didn't know how to express it. I really thought that was the worst thing anybody would ever have to go through. But I was about to find out that life hadn't even begun to get rough for me and my brother. Hell was on the way. Between the ages of five and nine, I was completely terrorized by my grandfather. After the concert, one of the contributing authors on the stage uh, was Kelvin Belton. He had written in Dave's book the, the phrase, uh, second, second chance at life. And uh, he was there to hear that concert. And now he considers this piece to be his theme song, uh, really <laughs> something to really help prompt and provoke and encourage him every day, every minute to seek that path of redemption that he has set himself on. 
Let us have a reading for this next piece, which is called Change. This piece is written by Andre Simpson, another of the co-authors for Writing Our Way Out. My plan was to continue living drug-free and crime-free, and to do that, I had to replace the drugs and crime with something else. The void had to be filled. After my first bid, I began working as a salesman and getting myself God-centered. I chose to be a salesman because I already knew I was able to sell drugs to every walk of life, and out there, the competition was fierce, so I had to formulate a plan and, sure enough, have a nice talk game. If I didn't use my gift of gab, the other hustlers in the game would have climbed aboard my back and rode me till I stumbled and fell, stealing my air, my strength, my aura. So becoming a salesman on the right side of the fence made pretty good sense to me. You must do the thing you cannot do, Eleanor Roosevelt once said. I applied for the job, knowing I was a convicted felon, but I made the affirmation and guess what? I got it and flourished. I became the best salesman GHH and Associates ever had. The boss even gave me the keys to the warehouse to run the business. Change is an inside job, and slowly I built awareness into my life. I learned to check my behaviors at the door. You can make a wish or you can make it happen, and I finally decided to make it happen. But immediately, peer pressure attacked me. I didn't want to be labeled a chump, a.k.a. wanting to live right, so I made drug deals. But I still held fast to not using the drugs. When I was by myself, though, I realized that I couldn't do wrong no more. It was incredibly fulfilling for the folks who wrote the book to hear the music and to be able to say back to us as performers and as the composer, yes, you've heard me, uh, you represented us clearly and well. And uh, as I said to Kelvin and to Terrence Scruggs, who was also present afterwards, I said, you know, we don't know you, but now finally we know of you. You know, we can take it from there. We're, we've, got, we've made a journey to this point. So this uh, final movement that we've, you've heard a piece of and that we'll close with, Change, is, uh, is uh, really a, a theme song of hope for individuals, but also for a community. And as Dave read in his text, it's an inside job for all of us. There's nothing that, re- that is more an inside job for us as individuals than change. I'm gonna make the best of this my second, second chance in life. Who do I want to be, whether in or out? I gotta make the choice that keeps me free. I'm gonna make the best of this my second, second chance in life.
David, where do you go from here? What's next? We've actually already taken uh, the next step. Um, just this past semester, I, I worked um, with our Commonwealth's attorney, Mike Herring, to divert low-level offenders, the same type of people that uh, get caught up in the criminal justice system, to divert them away from the courts and up to campus for the same writing class that I usually teach at the jail. And how does that work? They get they get um, special. They get out of jail. They get out of jail is how it works, and it's 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 great because they going to jail for the kinds of charges that they have um, solves nobody's problems, and we are lucky to have um, a Commonwealth attorney uh, who understands that, and it was a great experience, and we're going to do it again. We're not that far away from this problem. We are a half a block away, we're three houses away, we're one car away from these challenges affecting our homes if they haven't already, and we better get on the stick and address it soon. David and Tony, thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you, sir. It's our pleasure. Thank you. David Coogan is a professor of English, and Antonio Garcia is a professor of music at Virginia Commonwealth University. Antonio is the composer of Open Minds, Music That Mends, and David is the author of Writing Our Way Out, Memoirs from Jail. Coming up next, Books from Behind Bars. the authors were criminals or innocent or victims of oppression, the solitude and confinement of prison has produced many important writings. Miguel de Cervantes was in debtor's prison when he wrote Don Quixote. Henry David Thoreau wrote Civil Disobedience after spending a night in jail. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was behind bars when he wrote Letter from a Birmingham City Jail. My next guest, says prison literature can also be read as an account of vulnerable people who've been disenfranchised and forgotten by society. Josh Iddings is professor of English, Rhetoric, and Humanistic Studies at Virginia Military Institute. He teaches the cadets a course on prison literature. Uh, Prison is an institution that I think we sort of take for granted in our society. Um, though we don't really get many insights into what's actually happening in prisons. We don't really necessarily know what, what goes on, what happens. What, what are prisoners thinking about, you know, particularly if they're there for long term? What, what, do, they, what do they worry about? What do, what do they um, care about? Who are they thinking about? Why do they take up writing? What have you learned they do think about behind bars? I think they think about everything that we think about. From their politics to who they love, you know, you get someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who's imprisoned for trying to assassinate Hitler. He's a, he's a pastor. A lot of his writing from prison is theology. This is a guy who's, you know, likely to be executed. Um, he does end up being executed just a few weeks before, actually, um, the fall of Hitler. He's worried about the ways that we interpret God and what we think about God. To me, that's um, super compelling. Prisoners think about, you know, their sexuality. You look at someone like um, Oscar Wilde, who most of us know as this great Irish author, who's imprisoned for essentially being gay. Even in prison, he still produces writing. You know, he writes the Ballad of Reading Jail. How far back does prison writing go? We've had it since people wrote. 
Yeah, sure. So, so we've had people who who write from prison, who write about their experiences in prison. Um, some of the most famous names in literature have produced something that people would consider to be prison writing. Cervantes, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, um, Boethius, Dostoevsky, uh, Malcolm X in his autobiography, writes about his experience in prison. What was he in prison for? Um, he was in prison for larceny. As opposed to some prison writers, he, he committed a, a crime. Um, there are some prison writers who write about the fact that they think they didn't commit a crime. You know, Leonard Peltier tells us he thinks he's in prison because he is American Indian. Bobby Sands in the north of Ireland thinks he's in prison in part because he's, he's an Irish Republican. He's an IRA member. Many of the most famous names in literature, many of our civil rights movement folks are writing from prison. I mean, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. writes a letter from a Birmingham jail. He calls out the white moderate who says the nonviolent actions that they're taking in the South are, um, one, outside agitators, and two, that Martin Luther King Jr. and his colleagues are, are sort of agitating and causing violence, not really acknowledging the violence from the other side. You know, their nonviolent action as somehow equal to the violence of the Jim Crow South. This is a pretty, I think, common theme across a lot of prison writing is the, is the role of religion. And religion is closely tied up to the ways that we punish. How so? Well, so people thought crime, let's say the 1800s, early 1800s, people thought crime was something that was just part of our sinful nature. Prison wasn't this thing that is something that we should really take for granted. It's a relatively new thing. You know, outside of holding someone for trial or actually debtor's prisons until people could pay off fines, we didn't usually just sort of lock people up and separate them from society. Punishment was often a, a public spectacle. You'd go to the town square and see the person put in the, in the shackles or whatever, and they would serve their time and be done. But... Later on, for example, in the United States in the mid-1800s or so, prison became this huge complex. We started to think that prisons would deter people from becoming criminals. It wasn't until later where we thought people could be reformed. And part of that was, again, a connection back to, to religion. Does God see us as someone that's capable of being reformed or changed, or can, can we sort of repent? Do you remember when you were young, when you first were exposed to writings by people from behind bars? Do you remember your reaction to it? Yeah. Um, I think for me, the first person that really drew me was, was Bobby Sands. Um, he's an IRA prisoner in the north of Ireland in the mid-70s. But he's seen there as a terrorist. Oh, absolutely. Claiming he's a freedom fighter. So up until the mid-70s, IRA prisoners were considered POWs. They could wear their own clothes, their street clothes. They were able to, to educate themselves, to read and political texts and that sort of thing. And then the British government revokes that status. That's so important to them that they go on two hunger strikes. The second hunger strike actually results in the death of 10 people. Bobby Sands is the first. To die? He's the first to die, yeah. He's um, on on strike for 66 days. So those 10 members died, but they're striking against this status as POW, which to some readers might seem so minor. They refuse to wear the prison outfit, so they're, they wear their blankets. 
Um, they're denied access by guards to, to, to the facilities to use the restroom. So they're, they're doing their thing right there in the prison cell with fellow prisoners right there with them. So here's something that, that, that Bobby Sands writes um, uh, while in prison. He says, The men of art have lost their heart. They dream within their dreams. Their magic sold for price of gold amidst a people's screams. They sketch the moon and capture bloom with genius, so they say. But ne'er they sketch the quaking wretch who lies in Castlereagh. The poet's word is sweet as bird, romantic tale and prose, of stars above and gentle love and fragrant breeze that blows. But write they not a single jot of beauty tortured sore. Don't wonder why such men can lie, for poets are no more. And where are those whose holy prose have gave them haloed fame? They kneel and pray, or so they say, and play their little game. For politics and love don't mix, as well the vanquished know. So genuflect, you tortured wreck, and bear your cross of woe. Yeah, I think for me, um, what you see a lot of prison writers do, and Sands is certainly one of them, is, is call out the greater society, call out the religious leaders, call out the people that say they're the artists, the poets, the speakers for generations, and say, look, what, look what's going on here. Look what we're going through. Look how we're being treated. You know, something that really compels me about this kind of writing is, is how much it interacts. When you see the civil rights movement in the north of Ireland for Catholics, and they're, they're holding up um, signs quoting people from our civil rights movement, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., etc. To me, that that is compelling. That we all should be um, fighting for sort of social justice issues, uh, equality. Not having people in our society feel like they're second-class citizens. Do you see ramifications for today? You know, one thing I, that I think is interesting is what conclusions these writers are drawing about society. I think sometimes we forget the histories of issues of inequality, for example. But you can go back as far as, you know, if you want to look at someone like Frederick Douglass, he's calling out the clergyman in exactly the same way as King is doing. And you have people today who are writing like Michelle Alexander, Kianga Yamada Taylor. You know, they're making those connections between slavery, Jim Crow, and what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow. Which is? Uh, the idea that we have built a, a society of second-class citizens that primarily affects black and, and, and other people of color, um, you know, the, the idea of uh, a mass incarceration as a way of controlling and, and making second-class citizens of people of color, for example. Ittings is professor of English Rhetoric and Humanistic Studies at Virginia Military Institute. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back.
Even Billy had three sons, the youngest was called Sinner. He's gone to the Greenwoods hunting, just like a jubal hunter. As he Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Most of us think of mountain music as a band of musicians with hot fiddle or banjo solos. But there is a far earlier genre of unaccompanied ballad singing that still persists today. Our next guest is an expert in the roots of traditional American music. Cece Conway is a professor of English at Appalachian State University and the author of African Banjo Echoes in Appalachia. She's also a fellow at Virginia Humanities. Her love of mountain music goes a long way back. Blow his horn northeast, west, and south. Blow your horn, sinner. The wild bird heard him into his den, just like a jubal hunter. Cece, do you remember how old you were when you heard somebody singing, like one of these ballad singers, and thought, I love it? Really, the first song I learned the words to was not a ballad, but the blues with Lead Belly singing Irene Goodnight. And he also grew up in northeast Texas, not far from where I spent summers. And then I came to North Carolina to college and more or less never left except to visit. In college, I started going to fiddler's conventions. In the summer, there's one every weekend still from the 60s until now. Let's dive right in, playing Awake, Awake, sung by one of your current favorite Appalachian ballad singers, Rick Ward. Yes. The young man wants his sweetheart to ask his father to let him marry her. And she says, I can't do it. He's sleeping with a knife. He'll kill you. Go, love, go, and ask your father if this night... You can be my bride. If he says no, then return and tell me. Be the last time ever bother thee. I can't go and ask my father, for he's on his bed of rest. And by his side there lies a weapon to kill the one that I love best. I love how raw his voice is, and he just belts it out. Yes, he's so into the story, because ballads are story songs rather than just lyric, emotional, expressive songs. So... The young man finally says, well, I'll just go away if they won't let me marry you to the river and never come back and bother you again. And she says, no, no, stay with me a while, and then I'll run away with you. And what happens in the end? She does. And this was something new in this country, because in the old world, the parents they, there was no place for people to go, so they were more obedient to their parents. But here, they could go away and make a new life for themselves. So many of these old ballads are very gory. Why is that? Because they're about really the fears and the values of the people who sang them. 
So when the husband comes home and finds his lady in bed with Maddie Groves, he cuts off her head and kicks it against the wall. But then he lures it gently into the grave. So what kind of emotions and ways of being are those that are being touted in these ballads? Well, on the one hand, adultery can cause a problem. (laughs) Another interpretation of the song is, when you hear the horn blow, get up and go. (laughs) So did these ballads that came over from England and Scotland and Ireland, did the lyrics and form of the ballads change after a while in the Appalachian Mountains? The form didn't change so much except to grow shorter and more intense and dramatic. Had they been long? Oh, yes, they were sometimes 64 verses long, and now maybe they're a dozen verses long or eight. And the subjects, would the subjects change? A lot of the subjects remain the same, romance, jealousy. They're called by the people old love songs. How early did these singers arrive in America? They probably came as early as Jamestown in the 1600s, perhaps more from Scotland than from England, and there was also Irish influence, although the history of that is less clear. Were they singing and settling up and down the colonies, or did they immediately head for the hills and go to Appalachia? A lot of them were moving away from the English who had been colonizing them and mistreating them. And also a lot of the Scots as well came in during the 1600s and by the 1700s and then did begin to go south down the Great Wagon Road through Virginia often and then into the Appalachian settlements. They really have persisted in the two main communities that continue to sing ballads today. Beach Mountain was the first Appalachian settlement, what's now North Carolina. So Rick Ward, who sang Awake, Awake for us just now, he comes from a long tradition of ballad singers in his family. He's kin to the first two families that settled on Beach Mountain, first the Hicks and then the Wards. And the ancestor of the Hicks probably came in through Jamestown, worked on a tobacco farm at the head of the Rappahannock River. He was an indentured servant. He worked off his time and bought land, and then eventually the family began to trickle southward. When the American Revolution came, he didn't want to fight the Tories, and he didn't want to fight the Patriots, so he skedaddled into Stokes County, and then finally across the Blue Ridge into Beach Mountain. To give examples of a couple more of these ballads, let's turn to the musician and singer James Leva. Uh, He's a wonderful fiddle and banjo player and an incredible singer and songwriter. He lives on 88 acres and goes hunting in Virginia near Lexington and eats a lot of venison (laughs) and cooks well. Yeah. I believe he's once been described as that New Jersey boy who moved to the mountains and went native. (laughs) Well, James sings The House Carpenter. A lover comes to the lady and uh, says he could have married the king's daughter, but he's come back to her instead. She says, you should have perhaps married her because I married a, a nice young carpenter and he's a fine fellow. 
Let's hear that. salt salt sea and it's all for the sake of thee now i could have married a king's daughter dear i'm sure she'd have married me but i forsaken all her gold and it's all for the love of thee if you could have married a king's daughter dear you had better have married she for i'm lately wed to a house carpenter and the fine young man is he if you'll forsake your house carpenter and come I heard that there was a period where a lot of experts thought that these British Isle ballads had sort of died out. And then suddenly people realized, no, 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 this tradition is alive and well in America's Appalachian Mountains. Yes, and that began as early as when Cecil Sharp came in the early 1900s and found ballads that had died out in England here and was thrilled and collected a large number of them, went all through the mountains, but missed Beach Mountain. He went near what where Madison is. And was this a time where the record existed and were these played for a wider audience? These couldn't be recorded in the field at this time. He took down the music and his traveling companion, a lady, took down the words for him. Who was the first to come across these and actually record them? Um, Alan Lomax and his father, John, were some of the early people who recorded these. And um, he recorded Texas Gladden, for example, who sings The Three Babes, which is a song that James also loves. Oh, Texas Gladden is a woman. Yes. Was she widely known? She was to people who were interested in these ballads during the years that uh, Lomax was collecting, say. Let's play her singing, Last night there were four Marys, today there will be only three. Oh, bring to me some red, red wine, the reddest that can be, that I might drink to the jolly bold sailors that brought me over the sea. Oh, tie a napkin o'er my eyes, and ne'er let me see to thee. And ne'er let on to my father and mother, I died way over the sea. Last night I washed the old queen's feet, 
are to tread. Last night there were four Marys. Tonight there'll be but three. There was Mary Beaton and Mary Seaton and Mary Carmichael and me. Well, she talks about how she took care of the queen and she bathed her feet, and now the queen has condemned her to have her head cut off. Why? The baby has disappeared that she had, and was it the king's? And is that why she's going to be beheaded? But it's so understated. That's part of the beauty of these songs. It doesn't go into the details of the execution. It just has that amazing chorus. When did Texas Gladden live? Well, she grew up in Saltville, Virginia, early in the 1900s. Did many mountain women also sing these ballads? Yes, a lot of women did sing them. It seems that women became more the singers in this country. And why that happened is not so clear, but I've begun to think that maybe once the fiddle arrived and became popular, the men took an interest in that and began taking up the fiddle and leaving the ballads to the women who could be holding their babies or string beans and singing at the same time. Rick Ward um, sings the Joel Hunter, which is an incredible song, partly because some of the oldest versions in the Folger Library have the hunter fighting a dragon, whereas in in this song, it's um, a boar, the wild boar in the woods that kills 10,000 men, and yet the hunter still survives, and he's a jovial hunter, which is perhaps a jovial hunter, Yet there's another surprise in the song because there's a witch wife. Uh, The Joel Hunter splits her head in two. But there's also humor in it because she says, you know, what are you doing? You've killed my pig. And she's mad about that, and that's when he turns on her. Abe and Bailey had three sons. The youngest was called Sinner. He's gone to the green woods hunting, just like a jubile hunter. As he walked up the Greenbrier Ridge, blow your horn, Sinner. There he met a gay lady, just like a jubile hunter. She said, There is wild boar in these woods. Blow your horn, Sinner. For he has killed my lord and forty men, as you are the jubile hunter. He says, oh, how am I to know? Blow your horn, sinner. Blow your horn northeast, west, and south, as you are the jubile hunter. He blowed his horn northeast, west, and south. Blow your horn, sinner. The wild boar heard him into his den, just like a jubile hunter. And as they crossed the wide oak mountain, blow your Where are we now with this form of singing? Will it last? Can it live? It's hard to know, but there's a lot of excitement with it now. For example, there's 
a duo called Anna and Elizabeth. Anna is living in New York now, and Elizabeth grew up in Virginia. You can see them on YouTube. They have a new album that just came out from Folkways Records, which is very exciting. They've played uh, in Chapel Hill recently in a small bar. She was singing from a young age, and there were um, traditional singers in her neighborhood who were influential on her and other people. And actually, her um, mother's brother is a very good traditional singer in North Carolina. Let's play something by Anna and Elizabeth now. just think it's valuable to think about how relevant a lot of the hard themes in the ballads are today for us and how they're not sentimental, they're real. They're about the real challenges that people have, whether it's the young man's fear that he doesn't get to marry his sweetheart or it's her fear of leaving her family but her willingness to follow her beloved at possibly great expense and danger. We all know what it's like to be in love with somebody and to wonder how that will work out or to face challenges about how it has worked out. Calling them the old love songs is the perfect name, even though most of them do not necessarily end happily. Why do you love these ballads? Mm, I love the stories. I love the lack of sentimentality, but the deep feelings that are suggested by them. Are there any popular music performers that you can think of who've been influenced by this very ancient ballad style? Well, there's some sort of aging ones. Uh, Joan Baez in the 60s sang many beautiful ballads, Silver Dagger, the Copper Kettle, and others. Her singing style wasn't so traditional, and yet there's something about her personal authenticity that I think survives well. Don't sing love songs You'll wake my mother She's sleeping here Right by my side And in her right hand A silver dagger She says that I 
can't be your bride All men are false Says my mother Back in the beginning, when a bunch of us were first getting into this, this music and being around it, we were drawn to it and to the people who sang it and who played the music. And even though politically we may have had different ideas, there was something still very staunch and deep about all of the singers we wanted to become close to. You don't worry about us losing this style forever? I do worry about that, and every black banjo player I know has died. However, miraculously, after the banjo players were dead, along came Rhiannon Giddens and Dom and Justin, the fiddle player, and they became the first young black fiddle band in 80 years. And they learned the tradition enough that there is traditionalism there, and they were able to pass it on to somebody like Hubby Jenkins, who's another chocolate drop now. So um, there's hope. There's always hope. And that is the group that calls itself the Carolina Chocolate Drops. That's exactly right. And there was also a group born in the early 1900s called the Tennessee Chocolate Drops. Cece Conway, thank you for sharing this about the ballads with us on With Good Reason. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun. Cornbread and butter beans and you across the table Eating them beans and making love as long as I am able Hoeing corn and cotton too and when the day is over Ride the mule and cut the fool and love again all over Cece Conway is a professor of English at Appalachian State University and the author of African Banjo Echoes in Appalachia. She's also a fellow at Virginia Humanities. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quance, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Our interns are Emily Hayes and Adriana Gallo. And we had help this week from Steve Clark at WCVE. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. And cornbread and butter beans and you across the table Eating them beans and making love as long as I am able Hoeing corn and cotton too and when the day is over Ride the mule and cut the fool and love again all over